little interest that I came to read it. It was just thrown into my lap by accident. Well, the story is, the story is this, that uh, Margaret, my daughter, wanted her husband to read a good book. So she bought him for Christmas a present and nicely wrapped it up and put the big letters on it, Dead. And I happened to be there at Christmas, and my other daughter, she, she picked all the presents, and she saw that thing with Dad on it. She said, well, Dad, here it is for you. I said, thank you very much. I hadn't counted on a present today, but I got this book. So then I felt obliged, well, I'll, I'll read it too. And uh, it, was a, uh, it was a great experience. And that's the reason that I thought, well, not many people have the, the time to, to read a book like this. So, um, so let me share it with you tonight. Now, let me begin with just a... A general comment and say what, what's the what's the reason why we would do well to know something about Bonhoeffer? What is what is the relevance of what he had to say? And it is this that um, it is good for all of us, I think, to realise that a true and radical Christian life doesn't come without a cost. Bonhoeffer is the man who uh, who coined the term cheap grace, and he meant with that is that in, in many churches um, you could hear sermons about God's love and God, God's grace and Jesus had died for our sins and our sins have been forgiven and that's a wonderful message and you move on with life. And that kind of thinking that, that grace comes that shape to you brought, I think it was Heinrich Heine, that was a German poet, to, um, to say the following. He said, well, I understand from what I hear in church that... Uh, that God loves to forgive. Well, I love to sin, so we have a deal. That's how he understood it. Yeah? Whereas um, Bonhoeffer emphasized that, well, there was a, an enormous price paid for, uh, for the gospel, that our sins are being forgiven, that we can have a true relationship with God, and that came through Jesus dying on the cross. And therefore, our life should respond to that, and we should begin to follow Jesus Christ. And that is where he, uh, he made a lot of uh, discipleship, following Jesus. And he wrote uh, a book on that. It's one of his most famous books, and it's called uh, The Cost of Discipleship. I have a few copies here if you want to have. Uh, later we hope to have a 15-minute break. If you want to have a look at it, you're welcome to, uh, to do so. But Bonhoeffer was uh, someone who, who realized then that following Jesus comes with a cost. And he also understood what the Apostle Paul was saying, that we have died with Christ. And therefore, we lead a life in which the cross is obvious, crucified life. And Bonhoeffer, he, he understood that, he believed that, and he lived it out. Because he was saying, if you have daily died for Christ, then actual death is not a problem anymore. You just stand up for what is right and if the consequence is death for you, who cares? That, that was how he was, uh, he was executed when he was 38 years old while he was engaged to marry. Now, because one of his life is closely intertwined with uh, the theological and political situation of his time, I will, I will just move from one topic to the other. So I'll hop from uh, Bonhoeffer's personal development to the political themes of the time. First, a little bit about Bonhoeffer, where he came from. Um, his father, Karl Bonhoeffer, married a woman called 
Paulaar von Haase, and um, he was a neurologist and a psychiatrist in Berlin, and, and so he came from a, a family of theologians. They had a very good family life. They had eight children together. They were culturally engaged with everything what was going on, very much interested in art and music and all kind of cultural things. A highly musical family, and um, Dietrich was famous for the way he could play the piano. Now, Dietrich and was born on the same day as his sister Sabina, so a twin born in 1906. And a girls who had a, quite an impact on his life as a, as a young kid were two sisters, Kate and Maria von Horn, they were called, and um, they brought in a pietist influence. They were um, coming from the Moravian brothers, if that says something to you, but that, is, that was their, their background, and they placed a lot of emphasis on a personal relationship with Jesus and uh, living close to the Lord. So that was his, his family situation. Now let's now have a look at the political situation to understand Bonhoeffer and to understand what happened in, in Germany in the, in the middle of the, uh, of the 20th century, we have to, to start with um, the First World War. Yeah, we had in, in, the, in the late 19th century, you had all these powers in Europe and they were imperialistic powers. They wanted to, to increase their land, so England had lots of colonies everywhere over the world, and France had, and, and Belgium had, and Holland had, and Germany had, and so they all tried to, to grab their bit from Africa and from, uh, from India and China and that area. Um, but there was tension between these, these countries, and at a certain, uh, at a certain moment, the, uh, the crown prince of the big Hun Hungarian um, uh, kingdom was, was murdered in Serbia and that, that, was, that flamed up the whole thing and at that moment um, Germany uh, together with uh, uh, Hungary um, um, which was part of the Austrian um, kingdom they declared war on Serbia and then Russia wanted to come to defense of Ser Serbia so Russia steps in and because of what Germany did also England, Great Britain stepped in they, they uh, declare war on Germany and so that is how the first world war started a terrible war with lots of casualties um, Australia, Tasmania specifically I think was heavily involved and lost lots of young people uh, in, the, in the first world war we, we just... Um, celebrated Anzac Day and we were reminded of that how many people have been killed and um, actually it was a uh, it was a war in which human life counted for, for nothing um, at a time Germany had highly sophisticated uh, artillery and they could shoot down uh, the boys with a hundred at, at, at one, one go who only had a, uh, had a rifle anyway uh, thankfully, the World War I finished in um, November 1918 and Germany lost the war to the, to the Allies. And that led to the, what they call the Treaty of Versailles. Versailles is a palace uh, close to Paris. And there, um, the terms were dictated to Germany uh, what, they, um, what they should do. And they were very humiliating for Germany. For instance, they had to give up territories in France and in Belgium. They had to give up their colonies in Asia and in Africa, uh, countries like uh, what's now Namibia and Tanganyika. 
they, uh, they had to limit their military severely, maximum 100,000 soldiers, and they had to accept sole responsibility for the war, and they had to pay all the damages that was done in the First World War. And that led to the great inflation in the, in the 1920s in, in Germany. They had a, a Reichsmark, which used to be a value of about a dollar, I would say, and um, in three or four years' time, the value of that one Reichsmark, uh, the, the one dollar value, that turned into four billion mark. You could not even buy a cup of coffee for four billion uh, Reichsmark anymore. So that was the great inflation. Now, it's impossible to understand how one of the most civilized countries in Europe could buy Hitler's worldview and participate in the atrocities that his regime organized. You cannot understand that without constantly realizing the humiliation that was brought onto Germany by Versailles in 1918, the, the terms of the end of the First World War. The, the German sense of, of self-worth was trampled upon and, and that created in, in the whole population a deep resentment against what the world had done to them. And that's where Hitler comes in. Hitler managed to restore their pride as nation. It was not a good thing to do, but that is how, how he appealed to the people. So at the end of the First World War, um, Germany had to become a republic before that, um, there were lots of kingdoms in Germany and they had united in 1871 under, a, uh, under an emperor, under Kaiser Wilhelm, and he used to be the king of Prussia. And he was forced to abdicate in 1918, November 1918. So that was the end of the monarchy in Germany. And at that moment, Germany becomes a democracy called the Weimar Republic. And it was a very weak um, republic very weak democracy because they didn't really have a democratic tradition. And at the same time, you have to take into account that in Russia, in 1917, the Russian Revolution had taken place. It was an enormous threat to Germany. What will the communists do? Will they come our way and do the same thing? Now, at that, at that time, um, Hitler had his first go at, uh, at politics, but it didn't work out. So he ended up in prison and he wrote there a book and the book is titled Mein Kampf, My Struggle, that's what it means. And he, he explains there what he says for Germany as the future and how to do that and, and so he lays out his, his whole uh, political system. Let's, uh, let's move on. Where are we? We are at, uh, at slide three. Yep, we'll move on a little bit. Uh, back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer now. In 1920, Dietrich is uh, 14 years old and he announces to the horror of his family that he wants to study theology. Fancy that in, an, uh, in a family of, of lawyers and doctors, uh, someone wanting to become a pastor. That was unheard of and they really discouraged him to, to go that way. But anyway, that's what he wanted to do. And um, when, he, when he finished his, um, his high school years, he takes a trip with his brother, Klaus. Um, he had quite a few brothers, I think five and three sisters. He made a trip to Rome. And there he was impressed uh, by the Roman Catholic Church. He, he saw there they had African and Indian bishops. And that made him wonder about the, 
the importance of the Germanness of his, his, um, his own church, where he came from. The Lutheran church was very German. Yeah, Luther had an enormous impact on them, the beginning of the Reformation, but also Luther had written the Luther Bible, and still Luther was uh, very much uh, in honor in, in Germany. So his, the impact of Luther was, was enormous. And, um, but Bonhoeffer started to realize something about the universality of the church, of the worldwide church. So that... that placed the thought in his mind, so to speak, that made him later very critical about what was happening in the, in the German church. Now, from 1924 to 1927, he studies uh, theology at a rather theologically liberal university in Berlin. At that time, he also starts to read uh, books written by the, uh, the Swiss theologian Karl Barth, and he is, uh, he is quite impressed by what he reads there, because Karl Barthwood emphasizing, he said, well, um, we, we all need a personal revelation from God, otherwise we cannot understand what's in the Bible. We had a lot more say about that, but he placed an emphasis on we need a personal revelation to, to meet God and to get to know him. And, and Bonhoeffer called that idea, and from that day on, he, he was going to look for that, that kind of revelation by reading his Bible and praying that God would reveal himself indeed through it. 1927, he finishes theological studies with a dissertation called uh, Sanctorum Communio, meaning the community of saints. And the main thesis of that book, which is interesting, is this. The church is neither a historical entity nor an institution, but the church is Christ himself existing as a church community. So I'll read it again. The church is neither a historical entity nor an institution, but it's rather Christ himself existing as church community. So saying the church is Christ's visible representation on earth. Now it's a big thing to say, and that's quite a challenge to be for Christians. But anyway, that is how, how he looked at it and, and therefore became very critical of what a church had become in his time. After finishing his studies, he worked for one year as an assistant pastor. He was too young to start his own um, ministry as a pastor or even as a university professor. And he, um, he went to Barcelona in Spain, and there was a German congregation, and he was an assistant pastor there for a year while the, the pastor took a long service leave. Well, in that time, he started to preach some things. Mind you, he was... Um, he was just 20, 22 years old, very young, young guy, just finished his, his theological study and, um, and seeing already what was wrong in the church in general. And he started to emphasize the difference between self-righteousness and God's grace. So that was the question about how are we saved? Is it by doing the right thing? Is it by trusting in our good works? Is it by loving our neighbor? Or if it's doing all kinds of good things? Is that, that the way we can, can be saved? Or has that ultimately nothing to do with it? Is it something different? He said, the Bible says, you're saved by grace alone. It's God who interferes in your life, who calls you in, and you can only be thankful if he does. And afterwards, you start to do the good works. So he was saying, for instance, it's far too easy for us to base our claims on God, on our own Christian religiosity, and on our church commitment, and in so doing utterly to misunderstand and distort the Christian idea. And so he said that it's easily, that can easily happen. That you think you're Christian because you're going to church. 
you love singing hymns, you read your Bible. And he said that is an utter misunderstanding. To base your claim on that, that that makes you a Christian. The essence of Christianity, Bonhoeffer said, is Christ himself, the person of Christ. And that means a Christian is someone who follows in the, step, in the, in the steps of, of Christ himself. So that was 22 years old, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I was quite impressed with that. I have discovered similar truth, but it took me at least double the time before, before I could see all those things that clearly. 1929, he returns to Berlin, and because he is still too young to... Uh, to, to start as a, as a pastor or as a theological lecturer. So he writes a second dissertation, dissertation in a year's time and uh, with the title Act und Sein. And, then, uh, and the main phase of that book is that theology begins and ends with faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And apart from Jesus Christ and apart from revelation in him, there is no truth at all. So 23 years old, finished his second dissertation. Okay, let's, let's leave him alone for a while. And now, now we go back to, to Germany. And I want to say something about Martin Luther and the Jews. In his later years of his life, Luther had said very nasty and embarrassing things about Jews. And that had always, for centuries, been kept under a sort of embargo. People were sort of aware of that, that he had said that kind of thing. But uh, that was never widely, widely published. But the Nazis found it. And they thought, this is the real good stuff. Um, and uh, Luther, uh, Luther must have had some bad experience with, with, uh, with the Jew. And therefore he, he, uh, he generalized about them. And he had some very uh, bad things to say about the Jews. At that time, Bonhoeffer moves to America. Um, and he... Uh, he is allowed to study there at, at uni. He gets a kind of scholarship. And um, his experience there is that he found uh, very poor theology at unis and even worse, church life. He got nothing out of it. He, he said, he wrote this. In New York, they preach about virtually everything. Only one thing is not addressed or is addressed so rarely that I have as yet been unable to hear it. Namely, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross, sin and forgiveness, death and life. It's quite an observation, isn't it? That's what shows how far the church in general can move away from what the gospel is all about. Because I would say, if the church doesn't preach the gospel of Christ and doesn't preach the cross and sin and forgiveness and death and life choice, you have nothing to say. You have nothing to offer. But then he found out, while he was in, uh, um, in New York, that the situation in the Negro churches was very different. He, uh, he met a friend who studied with him, a, uh, an Africo, Afri American African or an Af African American? No, let's say an African American. A black American guy. That, that's what I mean. And um, there was a friend, Frank Fisher was his name, and he took him to a church. He said, well, you should come and listen uh, to, um, to, to my uh, pastor. And that was a, uh, a guy called Dr. Adam Clayton Powell. And he was a very powerful evangelist. And um, Bonhoeffer suddenly realized, well, this is what the gospel is all about. He had then, after a long time, for the first time, he had 
He heard the gospel preached by others. And a few more experiences, he learned to, to sing Negro spirituals, and he loved them. He took lots of records uh, back home to later to, uh, to show them, to, um, to have listened to them by his, his students. In that same time, there was an, another experience. Um, in, the, uh, in the late 20s, a German had written a book, and that's called All Quiet on the Western Front. I have it here. Uh, a certain guy called Erich Maria Remark. And that was uh, a guy who had been in the First World War, uh, who lost all his friends there, and he was the only one to survive of a big, big company of soldiers. And um, he wrote... Ten years after the war, a, um, a story about that, about his experiences. And uh, in 1931, when Bonhoeffer was in London, that, that story had, uh, had become a film, and uh, Bonhoeffer went to watch that film, and had quite an impact on him, um, because that film depicted the misery and also the pointlessness and the futility of the First World War. So... Bonhoeffer was very impressed with that and that influenced somehow his thinking on, on the righteousness of war and the usefulness of war. It seems to me that also in that time Bonhoeffer was born again in New York by going to this uh, gospel church where the, where the black Americans went and um, some people say, well, he, he, that, that can't be true because he was 14 when he decided to study theology so he must have been born again before the time. Uh, which I think is highly questionable. He had done theological study for four years and written two dissertations and still was not converted. And many people think, well, that's impossible. But I think it's, it's quite possible that, uh, that you can have an understanding of theology, an intellectual understanding even of the core issues like, like grace and, and God's love and forgiveness and all these things. You can have a good understanding of that and still it hasn't touched your heart. That is quite possible. So that's, that's why I believe um, that he was born again. He writes later to a, uh, to a friend. He had a girlfriend um, and, uh, about his experiences and then he wrote from, from a certain day on that he had a totally different view of all that the Bible had to say and the Word of God had come alive to him and, and since then he was, he was passionate about what he believed. And I believe that is, that is quite a sign of being born again indeed. Anyway... Um, 1932, returned to, uh, to Berlin, and he is appointed there as a professor in theology. And he had, in the meantime, since New York, he had become a passionate believer, and at the same time he had a brilliant mind, so he had a very clear understanding of things, and he could explain it very well. And he, unapologetically, he referred to the Bible as the Word of God to us. That was unheard of in a theological faculty of Berlin. They were, they were used to, well, you go study theology and the first thing you do is rip your Bible apart, don't believe any words of it, and then try to pick up the bits and pieces and say, well, there are some good things in there as well. That was theology in uh, the late 19th and beginning of the 20th century. And um, Bonhoeffer was trained to do all that kind of thing, but when he became a professor himself, he had a totally different approach. Now, he, he did not go to the other side of the, of the pietists. 
people who were shunning the world, who were saying, well, if you're a Christian, you're nothing to do with this world anymore, you, you just live your life and, and try to be good to people and love each other, but don't involve yourself with the world, don't involve yourself with culture and things like that. He, Bonhoeffer said, that's not the way we should be. As Christians, we should be fully part of this world and we should, we should represent Christ in this world and therefore um, you better enjoy the good things of life that God has given. God has given you a body and that body needs food and God has created nice food and if you enjoy it, don't feel guilty about it. That was his approach and I like that approach, I must say. Now we go back to the, the, the political situation and now we turn to the 30th of January 1933. That day, Hitler has come up Remember, he was in prison in the, uh, in the early 20s, writing his book, Mein Kampf. But he had worked, worked his, his way up, and, um, and he had made himself popular among many people, and he was voted the, uh, the Chancellor of Germany, 30th of January, 1933. And after that, um, very quickly, things develop. Um, uh, we'll, we'll see that in a minute, but, but first this, an interesting thing is that um, on the 1st of February, that's two days after Hitler is chosen, Bonhoeffer has a speech on the radio, and that is about leadership. Um, Bonhoeffer had seen Hitler coming, and he, he saw very well that he loved the concept of leadership. He called, Hitler called himself the Führer. The Führer is the leader, and the German people... Um, like that idea of someone telling them what to do so that they have to be obedient and they love to be that and to do so. So Hitler played with that and worked with that. But um, Bonhoeffer had his doubts right from the start. And this, I'll give you one quote, one sentence. What he had to say that was the core of his message and it was this. A leader who does not submit to God's authority becomes an idol and a misleader with pseudo-messianic pretensions. He becomes a law to himself and that is highly destructive for society. That is quite prophetic to say that when Hitler had just come uh, of, on board of some fame in, in Germany. A leader who does not submit to God's authority becomes an idol and a misleader with pseudo-messianic pretensions. He becomes a law to himself and that's destructive society. Now his speech on the radio was cut short for some reason by someone. Most likely someone was afraid that Hitler wouldn't like it and, and put quickly on, some music on instead uh, but we are not quite sure that's never been proved that that was the case. Now I'd like to show you now a, a video clip where you can see and hear Hitler and a few things that, that I just want to ask your attention for before the time. First thing is this. You first find a quote from Romans 13 about submitting to authorities. That was a big thing that the Germans and also Bonhoeffer had to, had to struggle with. And then you listen to Hitler, what he has to say, and you will, you will have to hear that against the background of the humiliation after the First World War. He wants to give Germany its, its pride back. So um, hopefully it works. Is it happening? Okay. Say that 
Kleinkleinigkeit, mein Herr, das deutsche Volk ist wieder stark geworden. Hitler often spoke about the Almighty, and the Almighty was behind the scenery of the destiny of the German people. So this was a completely ideological God who justified uh, the own estimations and uh, own expectations of the people who justified the exclusion of others, who justified the idea of a superiority of the German people. Ich kann es von der evangelischen Kirche sagen, nur die war durch ihre ganze Geschichte hindurch natürlich sehr obrigkeitshörig, obrigkeitstreu. Der Verlust des Krieges, des Ersten Weltkrieges 1918, der Sturz äh, der Monarchie, äh, Begründung der Republik, wurde von den Christen zumeist als großes Unglück empfunden. Hitler versprach gleich Beseitigung aller demokratischen Denkweisen, keine Republik, sondern Führerstaat, eine direkte Fortsetzung der Monarchie, aber nun eben nicht mit einem Adligen, sondern mit dem von Gott gesandten Führer Adolf Hitler. Insofern kann man sagen, die Kirche mit Schuld daran, dass der Boden für, die, für Hitler und seine Partei vorbereitet war. On January 30, 1933, Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. continued celebrating its new leader. Bonhoeffer spoke by radio to a national audience. He was three days shy of his 27th birthday, yet he delivered one of the first public criticisms of the new chancellor in a speech entitled, The Younger Generation's Changed View of the Concept of Führer. Should the leader allow himself to succumb to the wishes of those he leads? 
who will always seek to turn him into an idol. Then the image of the leader will become the image of the misleader. This is the leader who makes an idol of himself and his office, and who thus marks God. Before Bonhoeffer could finish his talk, the broadcast was cut off. Well, against a picture that I just draw before the time. So, uh, next thing um, that, that I'd like to mention is the, uh, the burning of the Reichstag. That's a, that's a building, um, that was the building where the, the German democracy uh, tried to function. It was uh, only four weeks after Hitler came um, into, into power. It was uh, what we would call Parliament House. Now, the Nazis wanted to destroy it because Hitler was going to replace it all. And at the same time, they wanted to blame the communists for it. Now, they found a confused Dutch guy who had communist sympathies, and he was found on the spot, and Hitler had him uh, executed straight away. And then the message that he passed on said, well, uh, we are saving the German people from the threat of Russian communists. Yeah, because look what they have done. They have put that, that building uh, to fire. Most likely Hitler's own men had done that. But um, Hitler had another motive as well for doing that, and that was he wanted to have a state of emergency because Germany was a, a nation with lots of laws and lots of rights that had to be protected, and Hitler wanted to put a stop to that so he would uh, restrict all kinds of liberties. Freedom of press um, was, was stopped. Home integrity, you could just, uh, when Hitler's people wanted to come in, they, uh, they wanted to search the house, and that was, um, they could do that. So at that moment, normal law was suspended, yeah, four weeks after Hitler came on, and, and the Nazis were given the freedom to arrest all political op opponents, everybody who spoke out clearly against Hitler, and, um, and, what he had, and if people had crit been criticizing this state of emerging thing, then Hitler said, well, finish them because we can't use these people. Germany is too important to be stopped by people like that. Then Hitler personally took over all the responsibilities that the Reichstag used to have. Now a few things about the church and the Jewish question plays a very important role in the, in the whole development of, um, of Bonhoeffer. Um, 1st of April 1933, two months after Hitler became the Chancellor, he calls for a boycott of all Jewish shops. And that was enforced by, uh, by SA men. That was Hitler's intimidation army. There were a lot of people with him and they, had, they were semi-military, but they were officially not allowed to have, have weapons, but they, uh, Hitler used them for intimidating people. And he called to boycott all Jewish shops, don't buy there anymore, and um, all people were steered away from that. One week after that, he introduced what he called the Aryan paragraph. And, um, and that meant, um, at that stage, that all government employees, all who worked for government, had to be of Aryan stock. Now, Aryans are that are white German people, not necessarily uh, German. They could be French or Swiss or Austrian. They were all considered Aryan people. But anyway, no Jews. And that included all personnel of un universities, hospitals, teachers, and ultimately pastors. So 
then he, he ordered that uh, if Jews want to go to church, that's fine. Let them have their own churches, separate churches for Jewish Christians. And um, there was a whole group in, in Germany who, who supported those ideas. You saw on the, on the film that Hitler was uh, meeting a few uh, church people there with big crosses on and big ropes. And, and these, this was the movement, what called the German Christians, the Deutsche Christen. And they supported Hitler and, and his ideas because they thought, well, Hitler is bringing back uh, work for the people. There's money again, there's wealth, there is um, moral order, communists are kept at bay, and all these good things. So let's, let's support him. He is restoring the pride of Germany. Yeah, and that's why they were, were called also Deutsche Christen, German Christians, but the emphasis on German, German first, and then, then Christian. Bonhoeffer is the first one who, who, who responds and who protests against that. And, and, and he has to say quite a few things about how the church relates to the state and whether the state can control the church or the church state and how they have to live together. And Bonhoeffer was saying that the church needs to live by her own laws as given by God. And the church needs to be able to stand up against the state if they... Um, violate God's laws and the, the church needs to speak up to defend the powerless in this case the Jews not only the Christian Jews but also the non-Christian Jews and he said the gospel the very gospel is at stake here if we don't do that as church we have lost to be a real Christian church very strong words in the meantime Nazi theology was happening and, and, and developing in itself and the very passages of the Bible that Bonhoeffer thrived on like the Sermon on the Mount blessed are the make and the humble will inherit the earth and things like that that was stuff that was hated by the Nazis yeah? meekness and humility yeah? they, Hitler was more inspired by someone like uh, Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche a 19th century philosopher and he developed an ubermensch theory and he said in, in man if man wants to make progress in the world he has to forget about God he has to de declare God dead and he has to, to have the will to power uh, he must become a kind of God himself that was, um, that was what Nazi uh, leadership really liked about so they were becoming more and more anti-Christian uh, Hitler would, would be careful in that though he, he was not in any way a Christian had no sympathy for it but he realized that many Germans were and if he wanted to, to keep their support he had to speak about God and about the Almighty etc. So old German paganism was restored in that time by the, by the Nazis and the swastika became the symbol to be displayed everywhere so from every public building you had these big flags red flags with a uh, with a white circle and then the swastika symbol on it. Can we say it? That's the one. The, um, as, it, as it went, these Deutsche Christen, who sympathized with Hitler and his ideas, they, they became more and more involved in this anti-Jewish thinking. And they, they discovered, well, actually, the Old Testament is a Jewish book, so we have to get rid of this. Yeah, lots of, of German theology uh, and liberal theology already in the 19th century is already uh, developing this anti-Jewish feeling, anti-Old Testament feeling. So Old Testament uh, will have to go 
and the New Testament over time as well, because they realized there were a few Jews operating in the New Testament as well, including Jesus. All hymns in church were purged of what was considered Jewish elements. So no hallelujahs anymore, and no hosannas, no use of the word Yahweh or Jehovah. And you, you can understand that Bonhoeffer more and more spoke up against that kind of stuff, because he said, well, if, if a church is not willing to stand up for the truth, then you can't be a church of Jesus Christ. And that's the, the, the start of the so-called church struggle. Where is the church standing in all this? What do they do? The church battle, the Kirchenkampf. And then he, and Bonhoeffer used to say to people who said, yes, but we have, to, we have to make compromise, we have to be careful because we may lose all kinds of things and, and if we speak out too clearly of what we really think, we'll be in trouble. And Bonhoeffer would say to them, well, if you board a wrong train, it's no use running along the corridor in the opposite direction. If you stay in there, you will just be taken along. And um, he made a final attempt to make the, um, the church uh, return to the, uh, to the Bible and to the confessions, and he wrote a, uh, what's called the Bethel Confession, spelling out the fundamentals of Christian faith. And, um, and consequently also a call to make that Aryan paragraph undone in the church, yeah? that, they, um, that they wanted to, uh, to throw the Jews out. So then the church came together, 5 September 1933. It is less than nine months after Hitler came on board. And there was a synod, and that's called the Brown Synod. And show us a picture of that. Um, 80% of the delegates, church delegates, they appeared in Nazi shirts, brown shirts, and they were all keen to support Hitler and greeted him that way. Well, in the same time, Bonhoeffer was very disappointed that the churches did not accept his Bethel confession, so he said, I want to take a little bit of distance and, and see if I'm on the right track. He accepted a call to London, and he wanted to, to also engage with the ecumenical movement, what other Christians uh, all over the world would think, and also he was keen to be more in pastorate than in, in university stuff, so in academical. So he, he'd like to just to work with people, with children, etc., because that's where his passion was and his love was to, to share what he had found out about Jesus. So over that period, the cost of discipleship became more and more a reality to him. And he was preparing to die for Christ, and he would regularly say that. Um, then, um, in May 1934, there is an uh, a emergency league of pastors who were troubled about what Hitler was doing, and, and quite a number of pastors had joined that emergency league, the, the Pfarrer Notbund, and they called a synod together of confessing churches in Barmen. Barmen is a German city. Somewhere in Karl Barth came on the scene there, um, the Swiss theologian, and he formulated the Barmer thesis. And it was a very clear Christian witness. I have them. You'll, you'll find them in the book, in the biography, the whole, uh, the whole series, so I won't uh, read them to you. But, but saying things like, um, there is only one Lord of the one apostolic church. I've seen in, against the background it was saying lots of things about, uh, about what Hitler was doing and taking over power in church. And it was also saying, 
Um, if, if you find that we are taking our stand on Scripture, let no fear of temptation, uh, fear or temptation keep you from treading with us the path of faith and obedience to the Word of God. Because all of life belongs to Jesus. And the task of the church is to bring the message of free grace to all people. So here you have a few quotes of this, uh, this confessional document uh, written in Barman, um, 1934. In the meantime, um, back to the political scene again. Uh, Hindenburg, the old president of the German Republic, the last remnant of democracy, he was about to die. He was 86. And Hitler feared that, that after Hindenburg would die, who, who had still a lot of respect of people, that, that many Germans would want to return to the monarchy under the leadership of some Wehrmacht generals. Wehrmacht was the, uh, was the German army. And um, they were not, uh, not impressed at all with what Hitler was trying to do. Um, and they, they had people with strong leadership qualities, so Hitler decided we have to do something about them, so he organized what's known as the Night of the Long Knives, 29 of June 1934, and all the possible enemies of Hitler, who might do something against him, um, including many high-ranking military officers, were arrested and killed. Now just see how... how how Hitler operated, how devious man he was. He ordered Röhm, Ernst Röhm, he was the leader of, the, of Hitler's Sturmabteilung, Hitler's SA, and that was the intimidation army of Hitler. He ordered him to organize the killing of all these people, give names and addresses and things like that, and you have to kill them all in that same night. But then... A few days later, two days later, when everybody was up in arms about this, this, this murderous approach, um, Hitler publicly called Röhm to, uh, to account, and he executed him because of all the atrocities that he had allowed to happen that night. Uh, and he himself played the indignant, innocent man. That, that's the way he, he, he moved um, and, and did his things. Now, when a few weeks later Hindenburg dies, then Hitler appoints himself as his successor, and he becomes then the Reichskanzler. And then through a trick, he made the Wehrmacht generals swear an oath of allegiance to himself. Yeah, so I swear obedience, and there were always certain formulations to that, German law and things like that, and he had changed that into the German leader Adolf Hitler. And they were just saying yes to it, and many of them felt bound to say, we have an oath made before the Lord to support Hitler. What do we do now? That was just in the way of thinking, obedience to those in charge. Move on a little bit in time. Um, there's a conference, an evangelical uh, ecumenical conference in, um, in Denmark, in Fano, in August 1934. At that time, Hitler had insisted on um, adding um, a promise that pastors had to make when they started, when they were ordained. And they had to say the following after they had to do the, the normal stuff. He said, I swear before God that I will be true and obedient to the Führer of the German people and state Adolf Hitler. Now many pastors who had to swear that, they got nervous about that. They, they were all patriots at heart and they wanted to serve Germany. But this went for many people a step too far. But the risks to not do it were big. 
It was the end of your ministry. You lost your, your income. You lost your house where you lived. You lost everything. You lost your job, um, etc. So that was a big thing if, if people refused it. But there were quite a few people starting to re- refuse that. Bonhoeffer, he, um, he speaks to that, that synod in 1934. And perhaps we can have that slide that, that says a few of these things. Yep, here we go. He, he had an address there, and he was saying there, there's no way to peace along the way of safety, for peace must be dared. It's itself the great venture and can never be safe. Peace is the opposite of security. To demand guarantees is to want to protect oneself. Peace, peace means giving oneself completely to God's commandment, wanting no security, but in faith and obedience, laying the destiny of the nations in the hands of the Almighty God, not trying to direct it. Battles are won not with weapons, but with God. They are won when the way leads to the cross. It's quite a statement to say that. And theologically, very sound. New thing in his life was the theological community that he started at Finkenwalde, the Confessing Church at that time, remember Barman Synod, 1934, had appointed Bonhoeffer to guide students who wanted to go to ministry and and guide them in the evangelical way because they did not trust the universities anymore who were taken over by Hitler people. And Bonhoeffer at that time came to realize that that students, um, theological students, can hardly be prepared for what they have to do in a merely academic environment. They can learn a lot there. They can learn to exegete and uh, exegesis and they can learn history and church laws and they can learn all kinds of things. But what they really have to, to pass on to people is a life of discipleship to Christ. And you have to be trained in that, in a, a kind of um, cloister-like environment. And he started there with 23 students, and he became the principal uh, teacher and preacher in that community. And they had, they had to start every morning with half an hour for themselves, uh, reading a verse in the Bible, meditating on that verse for, for, for half an hour, and trying to find out what is God saying to them through this, through this text. So, in, in that time, um, Bonhoeffer at the time of his life, he loved to be with the, these young men, with these young students. One of the students, a few years uh, younger than he, Eberhard Bedke, that became a very close friend, and he made him also his confessor, that he would... Um, he would share his weaknesses and, and they, would, they would mentor each other, so to speak. And this Eberhard Berge um, was the guy who received all the letters that um, Bonhoeffer wrote when he was in prison, 200 letters, and he later published them. And in the 1950s, he also published a, a first biography on, um, on Bonhoeffer. Berge, it was his name. The landlady of that, uh, the place they had there in, uh, in in Prussia, was a lady, 60 years old, named Ruth von Kleist. And um, they became very good friends, and they, they, were, they had the same understanding of what, what faith was all about. And so he loved to go there and to talk with her. And later she comes in the picture again, because another, whatever, 10, 15 years later, he falls in love with the granddaughter of this lady. But we'll come to that point. Anyway, uh, in that time, 
the, um, his thoughts on the cost of developing, uh, the cost of discipleship are developing. And he said discipleship is this, that you know what God wants you to do and then do it. And this often comes at a cost. So, for instance, to be practical, he said, we have to understand from the word of God that persecution of Jews, or of anyone for that matter, is against God's will. If you understand that, you better be obedient. So, being obedient means that you stand up against it and that you speak up against it. And then you pay the price for it. You may lose your job and become a martyr. That is how... uh, the thoughts of um, Bonhoeffer were developing and he lived up himself to it. Um, we move on a little bit. A year later, September 1935, the Nuremberg Laws are introduced and that was all about the purity of German blood. No mixed marriages between Jews or Germans allowed anymore. And Jew, um, Jews cannot... Um, um, or Germans, Germans cannot employ Jewish house workers anymore. Jews cannot display the national flag, etc. And many, many people became uh, confused. What do we do now? So, um, but Bonhoeffer became clearer all the time. Uh, if if you don't want, if you're not prepared to speak up for the Jews, then your Christian worship is useless. God doesn't even want to hear your songs. And he reminded of Amos 5, where it's saying that, or Amos 4. Summer 1936, Olympic Games, big event, Olympic Games in Berlin. Not every person wanted to participate, certainly not Jews, because they realized that they were going to Nazi Germany already, but... Many people, of course, found their sports more important than, uh, than politics, so they, they, they went there, but Hitler made the most of it, made it a fantastic show, all as propaganda for Nazi Germany. In the meantime, uh, things worsened for the, for the pastors in Germany. About, uh, in 1937, about 800 confessing church pastors who belonged to that synod of Bauman and who, who supported that uh, were imprisoned and um, and we're not allowed to preach anymore and not to work anymore. And in that same time, end of 1937, the Gestapo, that's the, the German secret service, they discover what, um, what Bonhoeffer, whom they didn't trust at all, of course, what he was doing at Finkenwalde, that was the, uh, the, the seminary, and they closed it down. And then the, the really, uh, yeah, the the war starts to, to warm up. In 1937, Hitler shows his plans for war to his generals. And he first wants to take Austria and Czechoslovakia and then Poland and then move on from there. And ultimately Great Britain, because Great Britain was the big one who had uh, done this uh, Versailles Treaty on them and pushed that very much. So he hated Britain. And at that moment... The generals, the, the Wehrmacht, the German official army, they started to make plans. Oh, well, this is a madman. There is no reason for doing it, and we can't do it, and we shouldn't do it. So they made plans for uh, get rid of, of Hitler and assassinate him. But they first want to make sure that if we only assassinate Hitler, but then his cronies take over, that doesn't help. We have to need a follow-up. So they try to, to, work, um, to work that. 
And then the war, the war um, starts. It starts with um, um, the Anschluss, 1938. Slide number nine, if I'm fine, if I'm well. Hitler annexed Austria. Here we go. The, um, the, yellow, the yellow bit is Germany, and uh, the greenish bit on the right hand of Switzerland, that's Austria. And Hitler uh, was an Austrian himself. He came from that area, and that was the beginning of his expansion. So first, Austria. Have you ever seen the film Sound of Music? Plays in that time where, where these, these, uh, these things happen. And then all pastors in that time have to swear an, an oath of allegiance to Hitler. And I already mentioned that, but that's another slide. I think this is what I have to say. I swear before God that I will be true to the Führer of the German people and state, Adolf Hitler. And we'll move on. Things get worse. In Germany itself, Kristallnacht, the 9th of November 1938, Hitler finds an excuse to order violence against all the Jews in Germany. So he orders people to, um, his people, his SR people, that was this, his um, intimidation army, to destroy all Jewish businesses and destroy all their synagogues. Now, fancy that was a big thing to do because there were lots of Jewish businesses and many of the big warehouses in Germany were owned by, uh, by Jews. So um, that, was a, uh, that was a major thing where, where he really showed his color what, uh, what he was planning, if you hadn't seen that. Bonhoeffer reacts, well, if you lift your hands against the Jews, that's the same as lifting up your hand against God. In the meantime, the German resistance against Hitler takes some shape. There is a, uh, an admiral of, of the uh, army, of the navy, I think, and with the name of Wilhelm Canaris. Very important name. He is the leader of the resistance movement, movement for quite a few years uh, until he is executed on the same day and in the same place as, um, as, as Bonhoeffer. Now he asks, when all this starts, after the Kristallnacht, he asked Hans von Dornjanyi, and that is the brother-in-law of uh, Bonhoeffer. He was married to Christine Bonhoeffer, usually named Crystal. And he, he asked him to put together a chronicle of shame. So document all the terrible things that, that Hitler is doing against Jews and pastors and church and, and whatever, all the atrocities, and a chronicle of shame. Uh, it was originally called, later on, it's called the Zossen Files. You can find it under that name as well. Um, that was the place where they were later found by the Nazis and which, which led to the death of uh, Hans von Donjani and of, uh, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So um, here we have a picture. That was uh, Bonhoeffer's, Dietrich's uh, brother-in-law. Then... January 1939, there comes a special problem. Bonhoeffer is conscripted for army service. And he first gets, he manages, because his brother, Hans von Donjani, is an important person in the Wehrmacht, in the official army. They were anti-Nazi, but they were still German's army. They, um, he managed to get a year of deferral for uh, for Bonhoeffer, and then he brings another visit to America. He is invited to America to give lectures, to get away from, from the scene a bit. But um, it's June 39, and Bonhoeffer feels so uncomfortable in being there. I said, I should be with my people. Here, I'm not paying the cost of my discipleship by being here in America. 
and giving theological lectures. So after a few weeks, six weeks later, he is on his way back to Germany. But he has a dilemma, of course. He has to come up for the army. Those who refuse will be executed on the spot. So that was for him a major thing to think through. Not that he was afraid to die, but it was, is this what God's calling me to do now? Or can he be used for other purposes as well? Do I have to find a way that, that I will not be killed? And yet I can't, for my conscience sake, I can't join the army and, uh, and carry weapons and be involved in, in this whole thing. So that was a problem, but um, he is a, a few months still off the hook, and later the problem comes again. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Now we move on. Poland, 1st of September 1939. Poland is overrun by, by Germany. Here you see Poland is east of, of Germany. And um, at the same time, the German army comes from that way, but the Russians see their, uh, um, their opportunity too. So two weeks later, three weeks later, they move into Poland um, from that side. Poor Polish people, they have suffered from both sides. They have su suffered immensely under the Russians, but they have suffered even worse under the um, under the Germans. Now Hitler, in order to do this, to enter into Poland, he always wanted to do things in the right way. So he had to find an excuse why he should attack Poland, because he had not, not a big reason for it. He had a reason for it, but it was a, that was a, a minor reason, I would say. Um, but um, he, he needed a public excuse. So clever man he is. What he did, he organized, whatever, some 50 prisoners political prisoners, and he dressed them up in, uh, in German army um, battle dress. And, and then he organized some, whatever, 100 Polish military uniforms, and he dressed up his own soldiers, SS people, the, the, the German, um, the, the fanatical German, the elite troop of um, of of Germany, who, who were on the direct command of, um, of Himmler, but also of Hitler, and they did all the, the, real, the real bad things. The SS, it's called, Schutzstaffel. That was the uh, elite group. Anyway, he, he dressed uh, um, also 50 or 100 people in, in Polish uniforms, and then these, these so-called Polish guys, they came and they attacked these 50 prisoners in German uniforms. And of course, Hitler up in arms and see what Poland is doing us and they, uh, they are just killing innocent and they uh, are the aggressors and we have to defend, we don't have to take this because um, the, the pride of Germany is at stake here, we have to do something about this. So, um, an hour after it happened, then all the army was already standing ready at the borderline and perhaps they run and in, in, uh, in a few hours overrun Poland, it's called the Blitzkrieg. It was not a slow-moving thing. It was, uh, they were immediately, in, in one, one day, they were hundreds of kilometers into the country, and they destroyed Poland, just like that. So they just set fire to all the buildings and uh, killed all the people. Um, they could place their hands on, especially the Jews, of course, but also the Polish themselves. They were not considered pure Aryan. They were a kind of what they call untermenschen, subhuman people, and the SS had a ball there. And they were especially um, aiming there at the nobility, nobility uh, people with education and clergy. And at that moment, 
when, when Bonhoeffer becomes aware of that, he, he, he formally or officially he joins the conspiracy against Hitler. Uh, he always he had hesitated for a long time, is it all right to assassinate a man like Hitler? But seeing what he is doing, he said, well, we have to choose one of, of two bad things, and we'd rather we have to get him out of the way. And, and he was convinced in his conscience that God would not, uh, um, not disagree with him on that one. So um, he radicalizes from that point also his, his preaching and also his speaking about how to preach. There was an important thing in church always is what we preach is Christ alone, isn't it? It was a very important thing to preach. Preach Christ alone, no kind of, I don't know, don't come with politi- political agendas. He said, but Bonhoeffer said, in this situation, just, just preaching Christ alone and say nothing about what Germany, what we as Germans allow Hitler to do to the Jews, that is a betrayal of what the gospel is all about. So um, we have to move from confession of the truth to resistance against what is happening. May and June 1940, um, that is uh, less than, than a year later after the First World War started, yeah, with, uh, with Poland taken, because after Poland was taken, then Britain comes to the defense of, uh, of Poland, so Britain declares war, war on, on Germany. So, and Russia is involved, and here we have the whole, the whole thing happening. Um, Hitler, um, nine months later, moves to the, to the west. He takes Holland, Belgium, and even France. And that was the great victory of Hitler, and many Germans, of course, uh, rejoiced in that, because taking France, um, that was undoing the humiliation of 1918. Yeah, and Hitler, he, he got in, in the kind of, he became a kind of a god, an idol really, but he became a kind of god in, in, in Germany because um, um, the people were, were worshipping like that. And Bonhoeffer said, well, that is what, an, what you do with an idol. Yeah? If, you, if he has success, and then you, people start to worship that. He said, but God is not interested in worshipping success. He is interested in our obedience. And he struggled at that time with a, with, a, with a question, which is a very important ethical question. Can a Christian lie? Because if you go into resistance, and if you make assassination plans, what, what about, can you lie? Can you, can you uh, not, not speak the truth when, when you are asked about it? And, um, and then he thought that through, and he, he came with the following saying. He said, well, we'd rather sacrifice the facts then sacrifice the truth, then sacrifice the truth. God has a higher standard of a truth is than just not lying. And I think that's very deep. Rather sacrifice the facts than sacrifice the truth. He used an example of that for his students. He had used that a few years when he was still teaching his students at, at Finkenwalde. He, he would say, for instance, um, if, if there is a class full of, full of boys and the teacher asks one of the boys... Was it your dad yesterday making such a, so drunk that he made whatever, such a noise on the street? And it was his dad, and the boy knew. The boy said, no, it wasn't. He would speak up for his dad and defend him. He said, that is sacrificing the facts to the truth. Same time, um, Bonhoeffer writes a book called Das Gebetbuch der Bibel, and that means the... Uh, the, the prayer book of the Bible, a book on the Psalms, a commentary on the Psalms. And now he's really in trouble because now he is promoting Jewish ideas and he is not allowed to publish anything anymore. And he plays 
the damn uh, by saying, well, it's just a Bible commentary, no more than that. It's always been uh, okay to do that here uh, for the last 2,000 years. And then the time is over for his uh, deferral of his military service. But then, in the meantime, his brother-in-law, Hans von Donjani, he had a... Uh, he had found a solution. He is a lawyer, and lawyers always find solutions. He is a lawyer with the Wehrmacht. But the Wehrmacht also has an intelligence, a military intelligence service. And Bonhoeffer voluntarily becomes part of the military intelligence for the Deutsche Wehrmacht. And that's called the Abwehr. And that, that means then he can free travel around, so-called to, to collect information for the German army, and that was his, his one hat. But he would do that under the guise of just being a pastor, traveling around, encouraging other pastors. So that suited him fine, that, that position, so he could travel around and, and do a, a fair bit. So um, if we move to the next slide, we see a few things. There are a few definitions. Just to, to, I have mentioned them already, but the German army, the official army is called the Wehrmacht, under the leadership of the generals, and they were in general anti-Nazi. The military intelligence service, that were, um, Bonhoeffer was going to, to work, was called the Abwehr. Hitler's intimidation brigade was the Sturmabteilung, the SA. His military elite group was the Schutzstaffel. And then there was a, um, a secret service, and it was the Geheime Staatspolizei, the Gestapo. And um, Bonhoeffer had a lot to do with them, because they were always coming at his, knocking at his door if he had done something, and they would uh, also um, put him in prison. We move on. Next slide. June 1941, Operation Barbarossa. Hitler attacks Russia, and then he, um, he orders that all Russian military leaders above the, um, the, uh, the position of, of sergeants or something like that, they all had to be killed. And that was going really against the, what the German Wehrmacht believed in. And now it becomes very urgent to remove Hitler. And uh, Admiral Canaris, he, um, he, he was the man, he, um, he's leader of the plot, and they have various attempts to kill Hitler in, in that time, but they all fail. A bomb doesn't go off, or Hitler doesn't have to be, be at, a, at a place where he's supposed to be, even the last attempt um, in, um, in 1944 uh, failed because, miraculously, uh, lots of people were dead in the room they were in, and Hitler survived because he just happens to, to stand behind a leg of a table like this and the, the bag with the bomb was placed on that and everybody there was, was dead and he just was standing here and he came away with tattered uniforms and some, uh, some uh, superficial wounds and things like that. Bonhoeffer, while he was traveling around, he also tried to make use of his, his contacts to... Um, to get in some support from England, from Great Britain, some support for the resistant movements. But whatever he tried, through people, through writing, through going there in person and things like that, but uh, England is not interested, Churchill isn't, Anthony Eden, um, the, uh, the foreign minister isn't, and um, Hitler says the only good German is a dead German. That's how he got to know the Germans by that time. So he was not believing that there could be any good Germans left. And they say, well, we first want to see action. You first kill Hitler before we, we talk about support. So in the meantime, we are in uh, 1941, June 41. 
um, Hitler moves into, uh, moves into Russia, but then he is stopped by the Russian winter. November 41, Stalingrad can't be taken by the Germans. And that's the turnaround point for the war of Hitler, and Hitler is furious about it. But the problem was it was minus 36 degrees, and in Germany it's a pretty warm country. It seldom goes below minus 20. And then you can still, if you are careful, start a car. But by minus 36, you have not much hope. So no tanks, no artillery, nothing works anymore. Then Hitler gets some new hope again, because in December... Um, that same year, 41, Japan attacks Pearl Harbor, and the USA joins the war. Now, not that Hitler was happy with USA joining the war, but he was happy with the support, what he felt he got from, from Japan. Let's move on. That's political situation. Now, personal situation again. Slide 16. Here we have Maria. I think there's a bit, bit older here than when he met her, but he falls in love with a girl... And she is 18 years old, half his age. She is 36 by then. And that's the granddaughter of Ruth von Kleist. He had known her when she was a girl of 12 years, but never taken any notice of her. But when she was 18, uh, some, some different. And to, just to realize how, how, how much all these German families were, were involved in the, in the war, that is, um, that her father was called up for military service. And... Um, he started a relationship with, with the girl. Two months later, her father is killed in Stalingrad. Then her brother is called, uh, called up for service there as well. Two months later, he is killed too. So many people have suffered um, in, in the war, uh, also from, from German families, which is a tragic story in all ways, of course. Now, in the, in the meantime, the resistance movement tries to, to move on and makes many attempts to, to kill Hitler, and they all fail. 5 of April, 1945. Bonhoeffer arrested. No, not in 45. Must have, must have been 43. Nine, 5 of April, nine, uh, 1943. Uh, Bonhoeffer arrested by Gestapo, and he stays one and a half year in a prison in Berlin. And when he is at prison, he, he, he feels quite okay. Everybody says, how are you doing? But he said, no, I'm, I'm fine here. He doesn't complain at all. He says, it's good for, for, uh, for a Christian to suffer a bit because the Bible is full of it and until now I haven't suffered a lot so um, he, didn't, he didn't mind he maintained his spiritual discipline in reading his Bible in praying in um, writing letters and, and developing his theology he was working there on his book on ethics and, uh, and made some very great statements in that for instance saying being a Christian is about much more than avoiding sin it is about fervent prayer to discover God's will for your life and then obediently doing it. Prayer is the key to discover what's going on in your heart. And death should not be too big a threat for a Christian who has been dying to himself on a daily basis. So that's the kind of thoughts he, he develops there and writes them down. In, uh, in letters, he writes from prison some 200 letters to his friend, uh, Eberhard Bedge, yeah, the one who, uh, who mutually confessed to each other. At that time, um, his fiancée by then uh, is allowed to visit him regularly uh, once a fortnight in, in prison, and they, they can have a 15-minute uh, talk uh, in the presence of, um, 
of one of the prison's wardens there. Anyway, um, Bonhoeffer experienced God's grace, sustaining him every day in prison. He was, um, he was still quite, quite joyful and he was a cheerful sufferer, so to speak, and he inspired many around him. And in that, in that time, he also um, begins to, to use the word religionless Christianity. And that's a, that's a typical one-over term, religionless Christianity. And it's often misunderstood by liberals, by liberal theologians. They, they want to defend their own unbelief with Bonhoeffer's writings. And say, well, we need a religionless Christianity. So give up on reading Bible and going to church and, and all these things. Give up and just be friendly to your neighbor and love your neighbor as yourself. That is a religionless Christianity. And they could hardly be further than that. That's not what Bonhoeffer meant. In, in Bonhoeffer's opinion, um, religion itself, that isn't Christianity. Religion is believing certain things. Well, there's lots of religion in the world, people believing spiritual things and, and do something with it and praying and five times a day or three times a day or ten times a day. But you, can, you can have a lot of a lot of religious things. Going to church is such a religious thing. But that doesn't make it Christian. You know, what makes it Christian is that Christ is central and following him is a daily thing to do. It has an impact on your daily life. And only true Bible-centered and Christ-centered life is worth calling Christianity. So that means in all we do, we consider Jesus as the Lord of our life. In every decision we make, we ask to the Lord, said, you are the Lord, I am your follower, I am, what should I do? Yeah? And, and you find out by praying what the Lord wants you to do. So, um, don't, don't take Christianity to be just a private thing of, of uh, making a difference between this is right and that is wrong and things like that. He said, in a, in a world where there's much evil around, we have to do much more than that. We have to confront evil and we have to put up with the consequences. And of course, that, in that situation, a very complex situation and that, that, that made for a very perplexing problem. How do you do? What do you do? What do you say? And how do you move? And Bonhoeffer would say, just look at God. Do what's right is in his eyes, not counting the cost, even your own life. A few quotes from uh, the book of Ethics that he, um, that he produced more or less in, in prison, and we have them on here. Apart from Jesus Christ, we cannot know what is right, and we cannot do what is right. And the essence of chastity is not the absence of lust, but a total orientation of one's life towards a goal. It's a wonderful, wonderful statement. Yeah? Many, many Christians can be so busy with fighting their weakness and fighting their sins, fighting their lust or fighting their greed or whatever. And you can fight until you die. And Bonhoeffer is saying, if you do it that way, you'll never make any progress. What you have to do, you have to be so full of what Christ has done for you and what he is, and you have to be so keen to serve in his kingdom that all these things will fall by the wayside somehow. And that's, that's how you grow as a Christian. I found it quite uh, encouraging what he had to say about those things.
We come to the end now. Next attempt to kill Hitler was uh, the 20th of July in uh, 1944. And that was... Uh, a certain Stauffenberg, the Valkyrie plot, it's called, and Hitler escaped miraculously. I mentioned it already that he was just behind a, a leg of a big table with a leg like this, and he just um, became safe. But as a consequence, of course, Hitler is furious, and he realizes there are some traitors among him. So the, the man who did it, the, the General Stauffenberg, he is uh, executed straight away, but many others as well. And um, then... Um, then he also finds out the involvement of, um, of Hans von Donagny, that's Bonhoeffer's brother-in-law, after they discover those files, the Chronicle of Shame. He is executed as well, and, um, and then Hitler's eye falls on, uh, on Bonhoeffer. And then he is moved from, from the prison, and he, uh, he comes in a very strict, strict place, and soon enough he is transported to a Buchenwald concentration camp, a camp where they did all kinds of human experiments. It's a horrible, horrible story. But anyway, while he was there, he, Bonhoeffer was noted for his unfailing faith in God. And there was a witness there who was not a Christian himself, but he, he said this about um, Bonhoeffer. He said, he was one of the very few men that I ever met to whom his God was real and ever close to him. Beginning of April 1945, Bonhoeffer is uh, crammed with 16 people in a van to be moved to Camp Flossenburg. That's a termination camp. Gas chambers and all kinds of um, instruments to, to quickly kill people and get rid of their, uh, of their bodies. And they arrive there, and uh, they are for a few days. And April 8 is the first Sunday after Easter, Easter fell in 1945, same, um, not the same as we had this year. 8 April was, I think, our Easter Sunday. Anyway, that time it was um, the Sunday after Easter. And with the people who are there, might have been 10 people, um, Bonhoeffer said, let's have a prayer meeting, let's listen to the word of God. And he preaches on Isaiah 53 about how... Uh, how the servant of the Lord was, was killed and to become um, the salvation for, for many people. And after, immediately after he finished the service, he is led away to be executed and he is very well aware of that's going to, to happen. So his large words that, uh, to his small congregation there who had listened to his last sermon said, well, this is the end here, friends, but for me it's the beginning of real life. So um, it was because of the discovery of these files, the Chronicle of Shames, where um, Bonhoeffer's uh, involvement became clear that, um, that Hitler was so furious about the betrayal he felt from people within Germany, you know, the generals and people like Bonhoeffer and Don Jani, that he blamed them for losing, losing the war. And um, so then... Uh, the 9th of April, Hitler is, uh, or sorry, uh, Bonhoeffer is, um, is executed. Two weeks later, that camp is liberated by the, by the Americans. And, um, 
another week later, the 30th of April, 1945, same month that Bonhoeffer was executed by Hitler, Hitler himself commits suicide. So the family, Karl and Paula von Bonhoeffer, they, uh, they lost their first son in the First World War, Walter, and then they lost in the resistance movement four sons, two real sons, Klaus and Dietrich, and two sons-in-laws married to their daughters. And his twin sister, Sabine, survived because she had married a Jew. So he had, that's why Bonhoeffer also had a personal thing about the Jews. And she had fled to London in 1939 and not returned. So slide 18 will show, show that, uh, that little memorial that's in Camp Flossenburg. You find the first name there is, um, is Pastor Bonhoeffer. And the second name is Admiral Canaris, and that was the leader of the resistance movement. So, that's my story for tonight. I uh, like to offer you a cup of coffee, and let's spend some, whatever, 10, 15 minutes on that, and then 20 minutes for some questions. If you want to know a little bit more, I'm quite happy to 